the Beatles and Let It Be, the all-familiar Beatle tune, right? And right before that, Barkley James Harvest, a song dedicated to the Beatles, and it's a song entitled Titles, obviously taking all titles and lines and lyrics from Beatles tunes and dedicating it to the Beatles. In order to prime you up to listen to a very interesting show on Full Circle today, about the Beatles, and we have a man who knows a great deal about the Beatles. For 11 years, he was their road manager, close, confident, and obviously best friend, and who right now is in the process of writing a book about the Beatles entitled 200 Miles to Go. And the guest is Mal Evans. Mal, welcome to Full Circle. Hello, Ken. I guess the logical place to start is the beginning. How did you first uh, meet up with the Beatles? I was um, a telephone engineer in Liverpool, and window shopping went uh, one day. I went down the cabin, right. in down Matthew Street where the cabin was. Infamous. And I heard this wonderful music coming from under my feet. Paid a shilling, went in, became a firm fan, and that was it. That was about 1960. this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm Lonnie Pena. Well, the long-awaited return of Dr. Kenneth Womack, although I guess it's not that long-awaited. We did have you in August from the fest talking about Red and Blue. We sure did. That was a good time. But since we haven't heard your opinions, what about now and then, now that it's actually out? <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy it a lot, and, and I'm thrilled with the folks all across the world who are excited about it, who are feeling a kind of an emotional connection to it. it. It makes me happy to see the song get that kind of traction. I did hear it for the first time uh, at a closed session at the Dolby Theater about a month ago, and I thought it was pretty good. But what I find now is now that I have access to it, it kind of stays in my head a lot more. It's, it's a bit of an earwig, right? I find my brain returning to it quite a lot. Certainly exciting times. I'm even more excited for the Red and the Blue I'm probably in the minority there only because I've heard those mixes and man, folks who grew up on those albums, as so many of us did, and so many of us, those were our gateway records, they're going to be hearing them in a, in a lot of new sound and fury in a few days. You were kind of uh, down on Red and Blue in August. Well, you know, <laughs> and if you recall, it's because I wanted the anthology. <laughs> um, and I did get a chance to, to share my thoughts with the Apple folks about why the anthology is so important to be remixed and remastered and all those 
Rees and given to us because as a professor, you know, I get a lot of value out of having state-of-the-art materials. And that would make a lot of difference for me as a teacher of the Beatles. So as far as the remixes go, I mean, getting that little slightly dingy mono track into Atmos is just amazing. The ones that just blow me away are I saw her standing there. I'm hearing notes and just the movement of the rhythm guitar on that song like I've never heard before. Same can be said for She Loves You and several other tracks where that little bit of separation allows you to appreciate the individual component parts of the Beatles as a combo. It's really something. Uh, All of that separation really brings those songs to life. It's quite something. Yeah, I'm so much looking forward to it. I even resubscribed to Apple Music. Just so the Atmos experience. Listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) They're wonderful. I and the Walrus is a revelation with the sound. Oh, my goodness. There's a new Strawberry Fields mix. It's quite lovely, too. Actually, Hard Day's Night, quite impressive. Just about everything. I, I went back through it just today to listen to them and try to find some more highlights. The technology, when it's used shrewdly, as we're seeing with these mixes, and well, for example, with Now and Then, is is really quite something. I don't know if I can stomach much more AI where, you know, somebody <laughs> substitutes the young Justin Bieber on Live and Let Die or something. That's getting kind of old. The novelty of that has worn off as well. Yes, it really has. But I do adore what the Mal technology is allowing us to hear with these songs and to be able to disaggregate those sounds. You know, my favorite is, and I know this isn't necessarily Mal technology, but fairly contemporary technology is the White Album. We will be talking about the real Mal, Mal Evans, you're on to talk about your book. But I do want to say, you know, I'm so glad that Peter Jackson found a way to name his technology Mal because Mal the software is doing for the Beatles exactly what Mal the human being did for the Beatles all those years. And (laughs) he's still there. That's right. He's still mothering them and being their closest compadre, right? (laughs) That's who he is you know, helping out selflessly. To his own detriment in many occasions. That's Although right. The, the software has no detriment, I guess. That's right, yeah. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to bring up with you is your George Martin book is still out there, the two volumes. And we just lost Judy from where we're speaking a little over a week ago. That's right. Lady Judy Martin passed away on Sunday, aged 95, seven years after her husband died in 2016. It's easy to forget her, but she was, as we know, a big part of the Beatles story in her own way. She was there when they celebrated uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand being number one in the United States. She was steadfast with George and went to so many of those early sessions until her own children were born in the late 60s. Just a big part of the Beatles story. Even in the last few years, in her dotage, she was still helping out with the Strawberry Field Trust. Really a giant of a person in the Beatles story. Our group is shrinking ever smaller, ever more quickly. Yes, it is. But we've still got each other. And we've got the next generation coming up. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. We have to educate the young folks. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But, you know, they find the Beatles for themselves. Tomorrow night, I think we do Revolver in my Beatles class. So we're halfway there. It's just such a joy every fall to do that course and have the privilege of watching them discover the Beatles, because many of them know the Beatles, but think deeply about them 
and just enjoy the nuance, as I told him at the beginning, of going from love me do through the end. There's no journey like that. And when you do it in 14 weeks, it, it almost feels like real time, right? <laughs> you know, we saw some propulsive changes last week with Rubber Soul and now Revolver. It's whiplash, head spinning kind of stuff. Well, and that's one of the brilliant things about this single is it is the last song and the first song. So the road goes on forever. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. I'm glad you put it that way because we've seen a lot of, you know, headlines, the end of the Beatles. This is not the end of the Beatles. It's just a signpost. It's a book ending. You know, the story's too big. The closest thing, and I know we've discussed this before, that I can compare it to is studying Shakespeare with all the plays and all the characters and the history. You know, the Beatles are like that. It's an enormous story with its own literary characters when it, it's of course, real biographical characters too, but it's just massive and it will always have something for everybody to think about and discuss. And of course, future generations will use them for their own purposes and have at it. It's going to be wonderful. They're elastic enough to take it. Yeah, it's interesting that the books and the documentaries and the histories are all told from the current perspective. I mean, what we're getting now is very different from what we got in 1995. And what we get 10 years from now is going to be very different. It's how we are, not necessarily what has changed about the Beatles. <laughs> That's right. And um, we're very transitory, you know. I can see, even with a lot of the new literature about them that is being published, you know, some of it is the kind of schlocky, wishful thinking, mythologizing. But a lot of them are starting to become forward thinking, which I think is important because a lot of this history is going to be written after at least the four principles have passed on, and certainly Yoko Ono and others, and it's going to be very dynamic and different. Well, some of the people are going to be much more open to talking about certain things and revealing certain things once there is no living person that will be offended by it. That's right. And hopefully Apple Corps and others will continue to adapt to these shifts I know my students, they'd like every STEM ever, thank you very much, uh, so that they can do some DIY things. And of course, in doing that, they appreciate the original, just as, you know, Giles showed us in 2006 with love. All right. So let's move into the book. This is probably the most anticipated thing. Well, until we certainly found out about uh, now and then from... Pendulette. <laughs> but it's easily the other big thing that people have been waiting for this year. So uh, the lesson there is we don't confide in Pendulette, right? <laughs> no, so you, absolutely. You, didn't, you didn't go to Pendulette's son show and reveal everything about the book beforehand? I was going to, but then I saw those headlines, you know, and I thought, no, he's not the guy. So you have been through much the same thing that Mal went through with the title of this book. It's been through a couple of different titles. It has been through several. I originally wanted to call it Brother Malcolm in reference to you know the lyric and then also to his place in that brotherhood. The publisher pointed out that folks might think we're referring to Malcolm X. We didn't want to offend anybody. Hemingway, Eichmann, stranger in the strange land. thought about Mother Malcolm, which one of Mal's just to see sisters, Barbara liked a lot because she felt like he mothered them. <laughs> that didn't go over. And so we finally just 
fell on the sword of Mal's original title, Living the Beatles Legend, because it was exactly what he was doing. I did like the 200 Miles to Go title. Ah, but yes. I also agree that nobody really would have gotten it. We kicked around all sorts of titles. There was a tendentious two or three weeks there. (laughs) So how much of this is your original work? How much of this is what Mal had in the diaries or what Mal had written before? And what else came from other places? There is certainly a well-researched Beatles book in here as well. We were talking about things like for example, when you're talking about the Los Angeles trip, there's a lot of stuff which clearly was not Mal's perspective that you have pulled in, stuff for Peter Fonda and so forth. Unfortunately, uh, I did have access and do have access to all of Mal's archives and papers, which is an enormous cache of material. That allows us to have Mal's voice and perspective in this book that simply wouldn't have been possible otherwise. We're amazingly fortunate that this stuff even exists. It was set to be destroyed in 1988, and we're just so lucky to have it. It includes all of his journals. He wrote three book manuscripts, as well as pages and pages of journal entries, diaries different than journals. He kept these kind of notebooks where he would just fill them with thoughts. We have his sketchbooks and, of course, maybe two, 3,000 photographs. So armed with that, I was able to sketch out a whole new vision of his life from cradle to the grave and really a little bit beyond because when his widow received the papers in 1988, Lily then began to essentially dump all of her material in there, which included correspondence after his death, correspondence with lawyers, with publishers, with her relatives, additional photos, those sorts of things. So it's an archive that's even accumulated since his demise. As well as the journals and the paper, did he not have what I call Beatles memorabilia as well? Yeah, he'd keep any kind of document, if it were a set of lyrics. You know, they asked him to transcribe the lyrics for the White Album. So we have the originals that Apple used then to create that poster that we all know so well with the lyrics. So Mal was doing a lot of transcription, really starting around Sgt. Pepper, but certainly during the White Album and beyond. In fact, Mal had a, a little idea that he didn't execute where he was going to try to tell the story of the White Album in pictures, in drawings. And I have some of the little pieces of that. He didn't get it very far off the ground, probably because they had already moved to the next project. Yeah, But he had that kind of nifty idea. We also have a lot of cassette tapes with Mal dictating his memoirs. He had a stenographer who would sit there while he dictated to the cassette and she would take notes and then they would create type scripts from her steno book and the recordings. So we have several of those that are also in the mix too. So we have a lot of this in Mal's own words Mm -hmm. via his own voice. So in short, there's kind of a ridiculous amount of primary material when I'm usually used to having next to none. So it's very different. Now, since I had time to ramp this up, started around the beginning of COVID when I was contacted by Gary Evans. So I had a bit of time. And what I did was I then pulled every name out of the diaries that I could find and also out of his typescripts. And I began calling all of those folks for interviews. So I think I did about 300 hours worth. So there is a lot of really new original material in here from many of those surviving witnesses. And I caught several of them in the nick of time. Ken Mansfield. Mal was always there. 
Mal was there for whatever is needed, whether it was everything from having a good time or he would have stood in front of him to stop a bullet if he had to. And Mal was everything for all things, uh, never more than a heartbeat away. And for me, he was probably one of the most special people I ever met in my life and a friendship uh, that was deeper than I've ever had with any other uh, man or person, I think. Mal was just special. Um, the day we met, uh, something just clicked. And the thing about Mal for me was, is I'd already been brought aboard by the Beatles to run the company in America. And so they already had a trust in me and a belief in me. But Mal, the fact that Mal trusted me and Mal, you know, just knew I was okay and I was good for them. His speaking, his feelings in the band just made me just at so at home and them so comfortable with, with me and, and me with them. So Alan White, who was really, really helpful. I mentioned Mal's sister, Barbara, who only just died. You know, a lot of these folks just gave me hours and hours and hours. In fact, in Alan White's case, he died about five days later. Mark Lewison said much the same thing with Tune In. It's like, I got to these people just in time. Yeah, and then they're the ones you didn't. You know that certain stories passed with them. And then there are the folks who you don't quite get to to make publication. I had a great conversation a week ago tomorrow with a fellow who went over to the duplex the day after Mal was taken away. He was there when the phone rang and it was John Lennon who said, you know, what the hell's going on out there? I, I'm hearing things. And fortunately, he was there with Bobby Hughes Fran Hughes' ex-husband, who was there to try to start cleaning things up for his wife and his daughter, his ex-wife and his daughter. And he took the call and John went from irate, you know, what the hell's going on to just, you know, sobbing. The end of the book is depressing, but necessarily so. You live Mao's experience to a certain extent. Yeah, you have to, because folks will come to understand. I, I think most people will understand and Agree with the evidence, some of which is from Mal himself, that this is a suicide by cop. You make that very clear. I think I do. But, you know, look, we live in a world where truth is suspect, and I think I make it indubitably clear. The whole air rifle story is just kind of a load of bunk. Yeah, it's over. I mean, we have a photo of Mal with the rifle, as you've seen. I have the police report, other witnesses who were there, Fran, who bought him <laughs> the rifle, yeah. 1974. So... I'm not quite sure how that one even started. Maybe it was because, uh, well, suicide always confounds the survivors, right? And you're right. That was a necessary way of telling that story. But Mal's story doesn't end in death because like the Beatles, in his own small or large way, <laughs> he's going to live forever. Thank you, Peter Jackson. Because whenever Mal comes up, who are we thinking of? We're thinking of Mal Evans. That's right. I feel it's safe to say that without Mal... I don't know that their achievement is as broad and profound. Everybody needs a Mal. You need a guy to help you who can stay up late and, you know, get a meal, go get some new strings at Sound City and wake up the owner in the middle of the night. You know, he undoubtedly helped to extend those sessions. Yeah, I knew there were going to be parts of the book that I'd never heard before, but I really didn't realize how integral he was doing everything. I think that's true for, for all of the artists, right, that inspire us, you know, whether it's Charlotte Bronte 
or the Beatles. <laughs> Everybody needs a Mal or several Mal's. You know, nobody works in a vacuum. Art isn't created that way, particularly recorded art, which is really a social production, right? Yeah, true. That's why I could say earlier, Judy Martin's in there somewhere, right? <laughs> you know, in that social production, Brian and Neil and several others too are part of the social creation of all of this great music. And, you know, we need people who sacrifice for us, who help make our lives possible and help give space for our creative lives. And Mal certainly did that for them. John Stone, who was supposed to be here, but is having some technical difficulties. His first comment when he finished the book was, well, this makes me completely reevaluate my relationship with our roadie. <laughs> he was a professional working musician for, oh, a good couple decades. That's right. <laughs> and I've, to a certain extent, been in the Mal Evans position, and I get that as well. And I think we can all understand when you're close to something that has meaning and gives you meaning and perhaps your life meaning, you know, we make sacrifices for it, just like parents do for their children. And Mal's a lot like Pauline Sutcliffe. Remember when she was asking Stu, like, what are you doing with these guys? You're an artist, dude. <laughs> he said, I just want to find out what's going to happen. <laughs> well, I think Mal wanted to find out what would happen? It was amazing how he is helping the Beatles and being their bouncer and their roadie and and from the very beginning, but he did it out of pure admiration for them. But he did it for very little money, very little compensation. I can go a lot of different ways on this. You know, by their standards, he's paid very little. But what we do know is that when Brian hired him, he hired him well above the going rate for that kind of work. He got a raise over his work yeah. with the GPO. You know, he was right at the top of that spectrum for a long time, even with the modest raises. It was really the early 70s where his weekly salary was no longer keeping pace. Right. And of course, there are inflection points when you study economic history, particularly European economic history, you can see them right there around 71 to 73. At that point, Mal's salary is not maintaining pace with inflation. Right. Now, no, certainly, <laughs> he's not necessarily living in poverty by any stretch, but it isn't keeping pace. Of course, the problem there is historical circumstance. You know, it's 1973. They fire Alan Klein. Neil gets up off the mat and goes back to Apple where he operates a skeleton crew. He and Mal are still being paid and, and will be throughout. Even after he quit. I love that. Which is hilarious. You, you know, it's a, it's a pretty small group that's keeping the Beatles alive at that point while they handle their fiscal and legal differences in the high court. It's the worst possible time for guys like Mal and Neil, right? You're not going to get a raise when your company's in receivership. No. Um, you know, the con man who was running it is gone, which is, well, good in the long run. Mal had the poor fortune, as did Neil, in certain respects of being involved at that point and trying to maintain business as usual. Of course, the solo projects were moving apace. Mal was still part of several of those, but it's just poor circumstance. The other one is, frankly, when Mal chooses to exit the story. I found myself over the last three years as I've worked on this thinking again and again and again, wow, if Mal could have made it to 1980, you know, if Mal could have made it to the CDs in 87, the remasters, the anthology, love. I mean, there was a lot that he most certainly would have been a part of. 
I mean, if you could have made it to 1976, right, seen his book published and maybe been a part of Wings Over America, as was in the air at that time. Right. He could have had a very different life or fate, but of course, he couldn't see beyond anything on January 4th, 1976. So along those lines, you paint a reasonably close relationship between Yoko Ono and Mal Evans, which is not something I'd ever really considered. The revelation that not May Pang, but Mal Evans was who she wa- really wanted to accompany John Lennon <laughs> yeah. to Los Angeles. Well, I mean, he is the big guy. She did want him around and he was going there anyway because he'd been spending so much time out in Southern California with George, as you know from reading this. You know, in, in those first months when Yoko was being hit so hard, probably inside the Beatles circle as much as outside of it, Mal was like he always was, you know. He was welcoming. And I think it meant a lot to her. Yeah, Mal seems to have had the most honest view of Yoko being around. It's like, well, okay, she's around. I don't know if I like it or not, but I will accept it and I will do what I always do. That's right, which is serve the client. He had a real sense of, uh, and George Harrison said it much more eloquently than I can, but he just had a real sense of what it means when you take on these kinds of roles. The first part of the book is Mal's childhood. That you have researched reasonably well, and I would assume a lot of that came out of Mal's diaries. Uh, The bit about his father, that was kind of interesting. It actually didn't come from his diaries. Mal never wrote up those stories. He fortunately wrote up in the last couple of months of his life yeah, you mentioned that, that the publisher wanted more. Yeah, the publisher background. wanted more material. But to my mind, the more interesting stuff came from the relatives. And being able to speak to two of Mal's three sisters, his cousin, both of his children. And I did have some papers that Lily had left behind, thank goodness, that made a real difference. But being able to speak to those sisters, you know, suddenly I had a lovely inside window into Mal growing up. There are certainly bits and pieces which came from Gary. How much of his father does he actually remember? You know, you, you look at Sean Lennon. Sean has these sort of half-formed memories of John. Was it the yeah. same with Gary? No, it's not. Gary was on his way to being 15 when his dad died. Gary has an incredible memory. I learned this the first day I spoke to him. His recall of events is staggering. He worked for British intelligence during his career. And you can see why he just, it's a steel trap. I mean, it goes in there and it stays. And so I would corroborate, not that I thought he was lying to me, but I just wanted to make sure I had good historical testimony and facts surrounding his memories. But it was damn near 100% correct. And part of it, I think, is occasioned by the fact that his dad is wrenched from his life. And so the moments he did spend with them are pretty special to him because there were relatively few. Yeah. And of course, if you think about his sister, many fewer for her. She really was more or less the age Sean was when John was taken from them. I think Gary was much like Julian those times he spent extent, yeah. with John. In yeah. fact, he was a year or so older than Julian. We have photos of them playing together when they were kids, as well as Rogue Best and others. You know, the Beatles circle was pretty tight one, and so they spent a lot of their time together, which meant their kids spent time together. So yeah, he's more of a contemporary, certainly, of Rogue and Julian. The stories of the fireworks and the holiday parties at Ringo's, those are great. They really are. And, you know, we have many of the photos, uh, not many, but uh, there's a large tranche of photos from those parties. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're not exciting pictures. They're people standing around. They just happen to be famous people standing around, you know, with essentially Dixie cups and paper right. plates. Are we going to get a photo book? Okay, well, maybe. book two has four times the photo allotment. It will have color. You know, I've held back several items for book two that are more suited to full page color prints, that sort of okay. thing. Nice. And the, the manuscripts will be in there, you said, previously said. Yes, yes. It's like, was it three discrete manuscripts? You said that he was going to put the first manuscript, the tour manuscript, into the third and final one? Right. There was Living the Beatles Legend, which he finished roughly December 1975, maybe a little earlier. And his plan all along was to insert the 65 tour book in 1965, (laughs) you know, where his text falls. And it actually works pretty well because the voice is right it's probably giving the summer and fall of 1965 way too much attention, <laughs> but particularly from the perspective of 1975, that's what people wanted to read. That's right. That's what we've got. So that's what we'll do. They'd had two covers at that point made of the book, and we'll we'll have those. Uh, there was a third manuscript, which was a kind of a novella. He called Rody. Which is really the fascinating one to me, uh, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, and it may be. The problem is that's the one we're still working to transcribe. It's tough to read, not because it's difficult, just it's literally difficult to decipher. And it's going to take some piecing together because some of it appears in other notebooks too. So even thinking about it now, I'm getting a kind of micro headache. You get a little rash and, and getting itchy. <laughs> Of all of this, it's the least important, you know, in terms of Beatles readers. But, you know, there certainly are many more photographs. Some of the ones that are in book one that we want to enlarge and give full color plates to you know, certainly merit that. But yeah, those are the three manuscripts. And then the notebooks are just sheafs of ideas. We have receipts. Maybe I haven't told you this. We even have a, a letter about the Astrodome. Chuck Gunderson mentioned that, that you had a letter and apparently you actually had something from the, the Houston Sports Authority. That's right. Pitching the Astrodome, which would have been so much better than Shea. You know, it was brand new, it was clean, air conditioning. They promised a mighty check too. I'll have to go back and look at it, but it was really fun to see, you know, as you Houstonians would understand. And the Beatles were interested in the Astrodome. We know that. Their filming helped. They specifically talked about seeing the scoreboard on the, on the news, you know. It's like it made international news and they not only saw it, they took note of it. That's right. Yeah, can't wait to get to Houston, man. Yeah, let's go to Houston. John, have you heard about our Astrodome? No, thanks. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have. It was on the early bird t- uh, link the other day on the television. That's right. And it said, howdy, Europe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was that it? That was it. Oh, it was great, though. Mm-hmm. And the scoreboard lit up and said, howdy. It, when they hit a home run, it goes crazy. It flashes lights and does all sorts of tricks. It's got a mind of its own. Uh, pretty much, pretty much. Mm, pretty poly. <laughs> <laughs> did you see McCartney when he played there in 93? I did indeed. Yeah. And L- Lonnie and I are on our way to Mexico City in a couple of weeks, by the way. Oh, we wow. We have to say that every show. It's required. <laughs> well, I, yeah. You say that Mal had basically reached the top point he would ever reach at the GPO. If he had stayed, he just would have been in that same position forever. So that's part of the reason why he decided to just take a chance. And it wasn't just because he loved the Beatles. It's a small part of it. You know, what was becoming apparent is Mal would speak about going to the cavern 
kind of blithely, like, this is just what I can do because it's my job, it's proximity. But there were people at the GPO who were noticing Mal wasn't putting in a full day. Mal was essentially a big kid, and he was probably not performing at the same high level he had when he started there. But even at his best, he he was at the point where he wasn't going to advance that much further in the organization. That's right. But let's not give him any excuses. He wanted to leave for the Beatles. And there was really only one person in his whole family who agreed with him. And that was his wife who stood by him and said, you know what, you know, I'll support you on this. Well, I mean, you know, Ringo was in the same place. His family didn't. You what? You want to go off and be a drummer? No, you can't do that. You got a good job. That's right. John didn't. And Paul only sort of did. So, I mean, you know, they were free to go off and pursue their passions. But but Ringo, he had a job. He, he was, he was going to be on salary for the rest of his life. Yeah. And here's Mal, who, you know, as you know, had a pension and... <sighs> it wasn't enough. That's pretty major to have the pension. You know, it'd be hard to pull me off. You know, <laughs> it's worth noting too that you know Mal is educated. He's not some dumb oaf. Mal is first member of the family to complete his education. The first member to have a his own home, has a car. You know, this to his family seemed like he was committing career suicide. Yeah. And you bring up his almost superhuman strength in several places, which is interesting. I mean, you know, he was a big guy, but he wasn't an outrageously big guy. He was 6'3", you know, 240, 250, something like that. But he had a ridiculous amount of strength, apparently. Apparently he did. You know, again, some of it I'm going off of his own statements. But other folks, as you've seen in there, clearly had witnessed Mal carting single-handedly the coffin amp or whatever into the cavern. So he was certainly capable of these things. So I I have no reason to doubt it. I, I mean, we do know that he did have a really considerable training regimen in his youth. I mean, the amount of cycling he did and swimming was off the charts, you know? I mean, so in in a certain sense, I believe him. Uh, You know, I think that for a time, at least, uh, I don't think he would have been lifting amps as quite so effectively on Wings Over America had he joined that team in 76. Well, he would have been John Hamill. (laughs) That's right. His folks have described him as being more of a gentle giant, though, right? I mean, he wasn't in too many fights. Uh, he was in a grand total of one, I believe. One fight? Oh, um, and it was because George <laughs> was being hassled and he had to step in and help him out. No, he hated it. He, he said that that was the joke is that, you know, he was a coward. He wasn't going <laughs> to. I mean, obviously, he acquits himself well, say, in Manila. Right. You know, but beyond that. I mean, that makes his lifelong fascination with guns a little bit, I don't know, I don't quite get that. If he had a non-violent streak, and he, he clearly did, I mean, he had a little bit of Lenin that way, and he had a little bit of Harrison spiritualism that way, but he still seemed to be tied up in this business of guns. I recognized pretty early from talking to Gary that there was this theme. And Julie found a lot of early photos of the family's home when they moved to London in 1967 and very proudly displayed on the walls are guns, several. And this is a theme that existed in his world. He was excited by the Old West, uh, as a lot of Brits Uh, certainly of that age were and are, you know, that kind of lawless culture. Mal was fascinated by it. And so 
instead of commenting on it, I basically, what, what I chose to do was when Mal would add to his arsenal or would go target shooting or what have you, I would report it just so that folks could see this kind of theme that obviously takes on very different kind of proportions at the end of his life. And thank you for bringing up the fact that the cowboy hat that John Lennon is wearing in those final shoots, and which does in fact appear in the uh, Now and Then video, was Mal's hat, and it came from Stelzig's right here in town. That's right. Yeah, he was really proud of that hat. In 1975, when he began compiling his memoir at age 40, Mal Evans wrote, I always wanted to be a cowboy. The notion of traipsing from town to town as a kind of maverick, an incorrigible loner with a six-shooter by his side and no past to weigh him down, seemed to offer all the allure he could ever want in life. As an Englishman, he was hardly alone in his love affair with the Old West. Many a Briton has spoken wistfully about the lawless age most closely associated with North America, a gun-toting, rules-flouting era that never graced the history of the British Isles. For Mal, these elements came together most profoundly in The Gunfighter, which he listed as his third favorite movie of all time after Miracle on 34th Street and The Wizard of Oz. So how did he get out of the reserves? You just kind of gloss over that slightly saying that, oh, some letters were written and they quietly discharged him. Wasn't that something that he could have conceivably been arrested for? You bet it is. And I have provided everything I know about that. He spent so much time getting into the territorials because he felt sideswiped when he wasn't chosen via the normal route to conscription because of his supposed medical issues. It was such a big deal for him. And then what does he do? Two or three sessions with the territorials and then he, you know, that's it. I've done a lot of detective work there. I've been digging into his military files. I've hired um, a person to help me with that uh, in England. And we just can't dig up much more. I mean, this is kind of it. I would love to know if anybody stepped in for him and sort of wrote a letter. I mean, it, it could have been something Brian would do. You could see Brian doing it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, it could be as simple as the territorials <laughs> weren't worth it. <laughs> and to be fair, I haven't seen a lot of cases where people are being prosecuted for not fulfilling this kind of volunteer duty. But after all of his belly aching really about not being selected he sure lets that go pretty easily doesn't he you mentioned brian the brian mal relationship it seems to be a lot of push and pull going on between the two of them yeah i gotta say i wasn't surprised though like all of us i'd thought about mal over the years and i used to wonder how did he get along with the boss or the kind of de facto boss brian's white collar ways certainly clashed with the blue-collar work that Mao was doing and was required to do. And as you know, Mao was often doing it for everybody, all the acts on the bill. Right. Um, so I found it very interesting, and I wasn't surprised that there was a bit of a personality clash between the two of them. Well, that and the fact that Brian liked to fire people, apparently. We can ask Frida about that. Yeah. <laughs> fire them and, and then rehire them 10 minutes later. So One lack in the book, as far as I'm concerned, is any real ability to say, here's Mal's interpretation of how Brian goes wrong over those years. And his own fate begins to be sealed, just as Mal's was. Sadly, that kind of information just doesn't exist in Mal's papers 
I'm sure Mr. Lewison has a bounty of material on Brian, and I'm looking forward especially to that book too, to watch that transition. You can tell though, in Mal's story, you can tell that Brian is less present, right? <laughs> Considering that Brian wasn't on the road with them all the time, they were living two different sides of the Beatles' life. Yes, good way to put it. Oh, so how did Mal become the designated drug mule? <laughs> you go into great loving care talking about his doctor's bag. Well, <laughs> and I was able to do that because so many folks who were part of the story would remember it. They liked the fact that Mal would show up and be there and be ready to cater to their hallucinogenic needs or what have you. I mean, it was part of the job. Kevin Harrington, the first day he meets Mal and Neil to begin working as Mal's assistant, you know, goes over, what was it, to NIMS or something. And there's Neil and Mal with their own cigarette machine, you know, removing the contents, loading them with weed and resealing them. <laughs> The carton so that they could travel. <laughs> a trick McCartney would use well into the 70s. And maybe not well in 1980. <laughs> yeah, maybe he should have used that in Japan, but. So, see, and that's why you always need a Mal right there. That started as early as the Prellies. You say that Mal was the one who was actually distributing out the Preludin during 63, 64? If they requested it and required it, he had it. He hated if anybody said, you know, I need this. And it could have been a band aid as much as a pill. I need a band aid, and Mal wouldn't have it. He would just chastise himself. He was. Pretty rough, as, you, as I'm sure you've seen now, on himself. If he weren't able to fulfill a beetle need at some point or another, it would just drive him bonkers. So he would do everything to make sure that his doctor's bag was as packed as it could be with, with paraphernalia. And that probably lasted as long as what? Through the acid era. I mean, obviously, by 69, John was getting his own stuff from Fat Tony. In fact, after about 68, there's almost nothing about the doctor's bag or any of that material. I think that it certainly, from what I could tell, wasn't in evidence at Twickenham. He and Neil go on a kind of work stoppage for a little bit during Abbey Road. A question from John. How did Ringo find out that he wasn't going on the 64 tour? You've got a fair bit about what was going on there. Who told Ringo? When did Ringo come out? I mean, you know, we know he collapsed that morning. They bought in Jimmy Nickel pretty quickly quickly and do you know when the flight was jimmy nickel seems to imply that it was later that same day uh, while others say that it was the next day i'd have to go back and check those details you know jim birkenstadt has written about that very well in his book about jimmy nickel mal was pretty flummoxed by all of that he was with george and he would often side it seems with george and george's perspectives it was george martin who stood up for Brian and said, all of these arrangements have been made. You'd be insane not to follow through with them. Ringo can catch up, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, my read is that Mal was as flummoxed as everybody else. He thought it was a betrayal of Ringo, you know, but of course, immediately then turned around and did the job. But you don't know how Ringo was actually informed. This time, I didn't feel like that was my brief. Fair enough. I, I'm pretty sure Mal didn't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> we need to ask Ringo. <laughs> That's right. Get him on this show. You've right. got a living beetle right there who can, can report back to you. We Did have you? been trying. <laughs> I'm saying, and I think Lin Lonnie agrees with me, we got to step that up. Ken, did you have any conversations with any of the remaining beetles? I certainly uh, reached out to see if they had any comment. I expected none. Yeah. I don't know how 
useful those would be at this late date. Um, yeah. I tend to put more weight in contemporaneous memories, which is why Mal's stuff is so good, right? He's often writing on the day or the day after certain events take place. So there's a lot of provenance and authority in his texts. So that's important. I, I mean, I would love to have, you know, let them know. I mean, Mal just loved them unreservedly, right? Uh, he cared, cared about their welfare like a brother, like a parent. I don't know that any commentary could have changed much. They would be the ones asking you for information. I mean, in a way, I suppose, right? Because I keep coming back when I think about Paul, who Mal just adored. Paul saying, Mal's not a nutter. You're right. He wasn't. These were his decisions, and he made them one step at a time. You know, his choices, many of them which came home to roost, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's why it's so heartbreaking when you get to that point where Paul just goes to Mal and says... I don't need you anymore. It's like, oh my goodness, that it just tears you apart. It does, but man, it makes sense, doesn't it? I understand. I mean, you know, Paul still goes out and says, oh, I love that I was able to go out and buy my own Christmas tree, cut down the tree, put it up in the house and and do all these things. But I mean, you know, Mao's your buddy. He is. And you know, I think Paul would say by his own admission, he sometimes doesn't have the right words for things. He really needed to free Mal, though. Mal was lying to Neil, which was really hard on Mal and the others. They really had a division, and it was three against one or one against three. Mal was shortly going to be in a situation where he couldn't play both sides. And of course, I would imagine Paul was getting legal advice good legal advice from the Eastmans. You know, if you're saying that we don't need the Apple apparatus anymore, you've got to give up Mal. You can't have Mal and Neil anymore. You're saying we don't need this partnership anymore, then you got to start living like it. Yeah. You know, we saw how they played the Spectre thing and the Long and Winding Road, etc. Those letters weren't written by accident. (laughs) You know, those were dictated by lawyers, especially the famous one about don't ever do it again about the strings and the choir. I mean, that was clearly a legal document. I mean, the way he says it to Mal almost comes off like a legal instruction. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like it's time to take all the photos of the Beatles off the wall, Paul. Got to move on. Yeah, you said you want to move on. There's a tens of millions of pounds at, at stake. I mean, I think there's some truth in there somewhere. I don't pretend to know it all, but even when Mal thinks about it, he doesn't necessarily see anything wrong with what Paul was trying to do. Of course, he's looking for the best possible light for his friend. But they did reconnect. They did. And I give Paul a lot of credit for that. Maybe I'm being too generous with what I'm about to say, but if I'm Paul and Mal believes he's going to go on $2,000 a night lecture tour. Was there any evidence for that, by the way? Okay, was he going to make $2,000 every night in 1976, which is, (laughs) do the math on that, right? That's a lot of money. I don't know that I can guarantee that, but maybe Paul is saying, look, you might need something to fall back on, Wings Over America. We're going to sell out those dates. (laughs) I saw that as really generous. And Mal picks up on it, too. He's very thankful, as you probably noticed in his comments at the time. So do you think Mal actually had talent either as a poet, a lyricist, a songwriter, or a producer? Of those four, I think he probably could have been a producer. I would go in the order of producer, then songwriter. He had many good conversations with folks like Joey Molland about what Mal was like in the studio. You know, he knew how to do head arrangement. He didn't just sit in the booth, as some would say. He would come down and 
talk about structure with the band and kick around ideas. He certainly knew what hits sounded like. You know, I think if Alan Klein had not been so cruel in that whole scenario, Mal may very well have done a lot of great things with Badfinger. And perhaps that band might have had a different outcome. It's hard not to argue with some of their best work while they knew him. He had been at almost every session those guys did, just unfailingly. When there was the whole search for the missing Hofner bass. Which is still going on, supposedly. Right, which is still going on. Uh, I had a few people call me and say, can you check the diaries? And I said, I'll check the diaries. But Mal was working with Badfinger when that was going down. <laughs> Guarantee <laughs> it. And he was. I mean, I, I think he would have had success there. He had co-written a Splinter song that was had pop hit written all over it. song on the Ringo album that we know about you and me, babe, and uh, another song that Ringo didn't include on the record, which is also, I think, quite good. So there was something there. That's certainly a harder kind of nut to crack than production. Mal was well known in studios all over the place. So he had better ends as far as that would go. Yeah, your story about George having him become an assistant and it being slightly heartbreaking, but it wasn't because Mal didn't really know how to operate the board at that point. If you come away from this book not loving George more, there's something wrong with you. The things that George would do, often as a very young man, to try to help his friend are really impressive. You know, you want to be a producer, you've just been stiffed by Alan Klein, screw him, let's get lessons, right? I mean, that's a great friend to have. I just read that over and over again. I just felt so wonderfully about George Harrison and and what kind of guy he was. This is what you're interested in? I can help you. Let's go. Get lessons. Get educated, right? Just wonderful, wonderful stuff from him. Down to finding Mal a new girlfriend, although (laughs) George going up to Fran and telling her, go out with Mal or you're fired. Eh, that might well be considered sexual harassment these days. <laughs> you know, you can read that how you, you want to read it. And of course, a Beatle saying something like that to somebody in a recording studio, talk about lopsided power dynamics, right? Parking that for a moment, the way he goes to Lily in the 80s, though, and apologizes, man. Gary told me that story. I was floored. The emotional impact of that postscript for so many reasons is big. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a thing to do. I mean, it just shows that no matter how you read it, the man had a deep conscience because, again, he's a beetle. Power dynamic. He didn't have to make that trip. To a certain extent, it makes up for that obliviousness that I kind of mentioned earlier was that, you know, they were too busy living their own lives and creating their own art to really worry about Mal until they had the time to do so. That's right. But, you know, they're young guys. I'm sure they thought Mal's always going to be here. We're going to take care of him later, you know, just as certainly happened with Neil. But we know that when folks are contemplating something like that, they maintain secrecy. And it's only usually in retrospect that we can tell that something had been, and especially in Mal's case, right? He'd been planning this for a while. It was no spur of the moment decision. 
Although it was probably the divorce which was the final trigger. Well, you know, what's amazing about that, though, is that it wasn't even a divorce, right? It was, I'm going to go see a lawyer for the first time. <laughs> it's amazing how little it took. Is that just a metaphor in his mind for the betrayal of his family? I think he's done much earlier than that. I tie it because it's the logic of his life story to the Lily contacting a solicitor. But when he goes for that last visit and he tries to talk Lily into a kind of open marriage and she says, you know, hell no. I think the writing's on the wall for Mal. He is not going to be able to live this compartmentalized life anymore. His carnage is going to spill from one compartment into the next. And that's when, of course, he goes back to Southern California and there's some pretty awful behavior with Fran in L.A. from Mal. Yeah, so let's talk about Fran. I guess it was now two years ago at Fest. We talked about those two radio shows that Mal did, which are widely available on the internet these days. Mal doesn't sound like someone who's getting ready to commit suicide. And So you're coming more and more into your own as a personality. And I think more and more the attention is really directed toward you, which must be yes. very exciting for you. It is. It's a bit nerve-wracking. Because I've never had to do anything for myself in the past. Mm. I've always... I was in the post, I was say, an engineer. So you had a job of work to do. I was not being big at it. I was very good. I was a good engineer. Mm-hmm. So you could, I could really cope with it. No trouble at all. Working with the Beatles was always doing something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can always cope with somebody else's problems. Yeah. But doing it for yourself is a bit difficult. A bit different. Do you, even though it's, it's hard, do you find the challenge kind of refreshing? Doing these things for yourself because you're really becoming quite a yeah. talent in your own right? Thank you. It is refreshing. It's very exciting. The book at the moment is my whole life, you know. He sounds happy enough talking to the crew there at Cal State Northridge. Yeah, he certainly does. You know, I don't know what else to tell you other than he's faking. Fran had a kind of regular team of friends she would call when Mal would get down to try to help buoy his spirits. That's part of the the story, certainly. You know, again, he was living his life in compartments, and there was probably nothing better nor happier for him than being able to go and talk to Beatles fans about their shared idols. I mean, specifically the 75 Fest. He had a ball at that event and told Mark Lapidos he would be going to every one of them as long as they had them. (laughs) I think he meant it when he said it, that it was bringing him joy and and probably reconnection with his favorite narrative, our favorite narrative. I think that's real, but he had to have been contemplating that at least for a few months. But during his time with Fran, the way I read it is that Fran was good for him. Fran tried to not only buoy his spirits, but turn him in directions that would have been beneficial to him. Yeah, Fran is an amazing woman. Fortunately, she's still with us, going strong out in California. She is a survivor, has taken some tough times in her own life, and really done amazing things. She's a very successful businesswoman. She recognized the many ways Mal wasn't good for her, certainly after a time, but she's not the kind of person to sit back and let life deal her a bad hand, even when it does. And so, you know what she was for Mal is she was his Mal. You know, she said, okay, look, here's what you've done. You've ditched your family. Let's make lemonade. Let's go for this. 
you know, you want to be a producer. I'm the booking agent at the record plant. You want to write songs. I'm right here in the middle of the industry with you. You want to tell your story. I'll help you figure out how to write a proposal, (laughs) which she does. She's just really resourceful. And I think in some ways probably allowed him to live longer than he would have. But I mean, her life also fell apart at least partially due to Mao, but probably more significantly due to her own issues with cocaine. Tell you, it's just tough to say. I tried to ask her that, and she said, well, my old man blew up my life. I'm sure Mao's shenanigans did not help. And his hard partying, and you know, somewhere in there is Harry Nielsen. I have no doubt about that. But I did get some good testimony from the folks at the record plant. They were probably looking for ways to not have her around anymore. Now, She was beloved after Mao's death. The founders actually come to her and help her try to rebuild a little bit, to their credit. How was Mao carrying around whatever memorabilia he had? I mean, you know, he had the diaries. You talk about there's a couple of boxes which then were subsequently to be sent off and get buried in the publishers and legal issues. I don't really have a feel for how large a volume it is that he had in that collection. Fortunately, we do have an inventory that the temp made. A lot of photos. Of course, photos, fortunately, can be flat. Several of the diaries were in there. There were actually one or two of them that were still back in their house in London that they hadn't even noticed were sitting there. 1967, for example, was not with Mal when he died. It was back in Sunbury. (laughs) And uh, after he died, Gary found it and said, oh, this is Dad's 1967 diary. (laughs) Wow. Some of his materials were at home, but the lion's share were in in those boxes and and his family wouldn't see them for a good bit of time. I'd like to see that autograph book that he carried with him with the Beatles. (laughs) Gary has that original with him. I have photos of it because I wanted to see everything that exists there in case it would be germane to the story. How aware was Gary of Mal's philandering? He had a sense. You know, his mother was a really good mom, but even the best parents can't hide their trauma <laughs> from their kids. And I think you know, Gary had a good sense and he certainly knew all he needed to know by the time Mal had moved to Southern California there at the end. He didn't have any. There's an incident which we have referred to, which is, uh, to my mind, very Larry David-esque. It's uh, a little bit troubling, but it's also actually kind of funny at a moment when we need a little humor in the story. Yeah. And, you know, I know what you're referring to. And we thought about, do we include this or not? And we included it because Mal was not a practiced philanderer. He knew how to philanderer, but (laughs) there's no doubt about that. But uh, you know what I mean? (laughs) But I mean, he wasn't above taking advantage on the road during all those years with the Beatles. And you mentioned that he referred to it as the sex demon that he had inside of him. No, that was Tony Bramwell's term. And uh, there's a certain point where it's arguable that he's far more of a philanderer than any of them were. I mean, you know, they were kind of done with it by the time they really get into 65 and their lot is spelled out so clearly in terms of being squirreled away in hotel rooms, et cetera, you know, Mal's the one who seems to be taking advantage of that. From what I can tell, the story's not really about that. It's just that happens. Sure, sure. It does come up, though. Yeah, sure. Particularly because in that Cal State interview, Mal goes off and flat out lies. Oh, no, no, no. I I never took part in any of that. I was always (laughs) off to the next city by the time that that sort of thing came around. 
Yeah. <laughs> but and uh, so the business of them getting cheated on Mal's book and the various publishers that was a very tough time for Fran, wasn't it? I mean, obviously Mal was no longer with them. So the book was essentially done. You know, Mal was way ahead of that deadline that had been posed in February 1976. So he was good to go. What does happen, though, is Fran had considered certain folks to be her friends who had absconded with some of the materials. And this became an issue because the publisher is still trying to recoup the advance, which was $21,000, and was hoping to put out the book, which again was essentially done. I mean, I have a typescript of it. So the issue then was who has custody? Well, for a time, it was out of Fran's hands. It came back into them and into Grosset and Dunlap via their attorney, Harold Lipton. Harold then handed the materials once they'd been returned over to a young publishing assistant from New York who came out to get all the materials and flew them back in his custody to the New York Life Building, where he set them outside of Mal's editor's office. And then they began many, many years of attempting to publish the book. At this point, they know that they need to negotiate with Lily because ownership is in question. And they really play it badly with her over and over again, or something might have happened, but they just really play it badly. At one point, they even try to suggest that any legal costs are all going to come out of her end, and she might make no money, giving her no incentive to play ball with them. And after a while, she's just saying over and over again, send me my husband's stuff. To me, that's, other than the bad finger section, the most difficult part to read, because these are people really just playing with their lives. They're playing with the Evans family's lives. And kind of cruel ways. It's a tragedy almost on par with the end of the story. So because of that, it just got shelved and all the materials got shoved in a back room somewhere. And they called it the storage room, but it was the basement of the New York Life building. And they only were uncovered when Gross and Dunlap was no more, essentially. And it was purchased by Putnam's. So they had to clear that out. And one of the folks there found it and recognized what it was and pushed hard enough to go to the Dakota and deliver a personal note to Yoko Ono. Right. And that turned everything around. The lawyer's letters are wonderful because it's like, these are not the droids you're looking for. It, it almost has the power of, of the force. Uh, Grosset, now Putnam's, doesn't know what to do with this material. And suddenly these Apple lawyers appear who say, we're here for our stuff. <laughs> and you're going to give us our stuff and we're going to send it to the family of our guy. That's what's going to happen here. It's just beautiful. The letters are a thing of beauty. Lawyers doing good for once, huh? Absolutely. Making sure that the family had ownership of their materials. And, uh, you know, Yoko deserves so much credit here because obviously she lit a fire. Neil picked up the torch. And just as he had when he was searching for Mal's ashes back in January and February 1976, he got the materials back to the family in Sunbury. You know, and without that, Gary and Julie have no window into their dad's life. 
They almost know nothing. So Gary read all of the material before he turned it over to you? Or, or oh, was absolutely. It? He's had okay. him for years. You know, he's had yeah, him. Yeah, but he, it's not like he dove into it periodically. He actually sat down and read through everything to learn about his dad. Right, but he would do it periodically. He mm-hmm. would tell me that, you know, you mentioned those recorded interviews with the Cal State Northridge folks. He would listen to those once a year. In fact, when we go out to L.A. next week, we're going to meet with Laura Gross. This was really important to him and to Julie to have this kind of window. They knew that it wasn't all going to be good, that, in fact, a a good bit of it would would make them feel worse uh, and not better. But Gary's a strong character. He's a sentimental guy. There's no doubt about that. But he's a strong character, and he wanted to know the truth and was okay. in fact, insisted throughout this project that we tell the truth or at least reveal what we know so that other people can arrive at their own conclusions. Not tell people how to feel, but try to tell things from Mal's perspective since so much of what we have is from his perspective. But having all of this material made it easier then to talk to the surviving witnesses, sort of like a lawyer, right? Where I know Mm -hmm. that a certain document exists that says something, it allows me to ask questions in a certain fashion to elicit hopefully more truth. Paul and Ringo are certainly aware of the book. Have copies been sent to their people? We obviously will not necessarily know whether they have read it or not, but have you gotten any feedback from either MPL or from Ringo's organization? I have no feedback. I couldn't tell you. Given their interest in Mal's diaries and what Mal was thinking through the years, I mean, you reproduced their letters of appreciation or recommendation, allowing Mal to write this book, both from 65 and from the 70s. You would think that this is one that they would probably have some interest in. I think that on the whole, if they do read it, they'll find that this guy loved them a lot, that they come off almost uniformly, admirably. Occasionally, they make less effective decisions. But, you know, we were in our 20s, too. We know that. (laughs) You know, that happens. I think they're going to see that they came off rather well and that often they loved him when he needed them most. And I can think of instances with all four of them that made Mal's life (laughs) a better place to be as long as he could exist inside of it. Well, and he certainly picked up little quirks of each of theirs. And in some cases, it's the best parts of each of them that went into Mal. I think so. Yeah. The sense of wonderment of Paul, a little bit of skepticism from John, although John really read him right, didn't he? In the rat, those last few days, you know, yep. realized where Mal was. You, this can only go a good way and a bad way. But yeah, I see that. I like that too. And <laughs> I end with his words about the Beatles. They were better than food or drink. And Mal loved food and drink. <laughs> <laughs> and to see that he wrote into his will, uh, such as it was, that he really wanted the four of them to get together. I mean, he had to know that there's no way that that could have happened. I think he believed that they might. I know what you mean in the perspective you bring to come to that conclusion, but I think in Mal Evans's mind, this would have been a shock to their systems and they would have performed together or something. All right, Lonnie, you got anything to close with here? I do appreciate you taking your time, Ken. I know you got a lot going on. So you're going to tour promoting the book? Yeah. So in the next few weeks, we're going to be at the Grammy Museum in LA next week and Gary and Julie will be with me. And then we're going to, we're doing a launch party at the Morrison Hotel Gallery in the city here. And then we're going to go out to Cleveland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The last event I'll do with them will be at the City Winery, which is on the Hudson River. We'll do a 
another get together there with folks out this way. And we want to extend it next year. So we'll go to London and Liverpool, um, maybe even as soon as February, you know, when the weather's really nice there, really get something (laughs) I Uh, prefer the U.S. cover. I don't like all those bright colors on the front cover. Did it trigger you? (laughs) (laughs) Not just a little bit. Yeah, the cover. That was another tendentious experience. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you always have different U.S. and British covers. And I can tell you in about six months, Half Price Books is going to be overloaded with copies of the British cover. And they're going to make me pick one up just because it's there. And because we're such good pals, you'll do it. I know you will. (laughs) I will. I will. Same here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Same here. I did that with both of your George Martin volumes. It's like I sure prefer the British one. I thought that was really cool. The on way on they, that one, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I like the quasi penguin. Sort of look like those old penguin uh, pocketbooks. Those were fun. You'll let us know if you're coming this way. Because of we will, course, we will come by. Not only will we go to your talk, we will try and set something up. Oh, beautiful! All right, so that's the Mal Evans book. I think. It is maybe not necessarily what people are expecting, but it is a very good book. You very much learn about Mal Evans as a person, which is not necessarily what you might have thought. Well, a lot of interesting bits in there. It's things that you normally would not have known. Obviously, you're looking at someone's journal and a diary, and you're picking up a lot of cool things about... A lot of behind the scenes. That's what I enjoyed about it the most. If there's nothing else, it just reminds us yet again, one of the reasons we have this remarkable achievement by them is that they were so damn busy. Incredible, yeah. Right? I mean, today you'd take three years, four years off. Nope, not these guys. Ah, I, I think in a single day, they did like 10 different things, you know? That's right. <laughs> no task was too big nor too small, Right. Even when they were at the bag of nails, I I felt like they were sort of working. (laughs) They were working the room, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, and then it continued through the early part of the 70s. The biggest set of revelations I got out of this book was the making of the Ringo album. Everything that went on between, you know, 70 and 74. I had no idea. You know, I knew Ringo was drinking during the making of the Ringo album, but I, I had no idea he was that far in the bag that early. Sounds like we're very fortunate to still have him. The bit you have about him at the end of the evening, falling down drunk and collapsing off the drums, and then two hours later being out partying at a night. Yeah, that's a tough scene. <laughs> or on the top of Capitol Tower. That's scary. <laughs> As John Stone reminded us, he was partying with... Harry Nelson and Keith Moon. So that's right. The stories you tell combined with the stories in the uh, Elton John book about Ringo from, you know, 70 to 78 or so are just hair raising. So true. So anyway, not only do you get a better look at Mal as a human being, you do learn things about the Beatles, maybe things you don't necessarily want to know. But as you have just mentioned, you know, you also learn their humanity in a way that we don't normally get a chance to look at them. That's right. Ultimately, they persevere as people. All right. Anything to close up here with, Lonnie? No, again, I appreciate taking the time, Ken. Maybe getting together with you at some point in time uh, back in H-Town. You got it, guys. Can't wait. Thank you. And we will be back next week with a new show. Be safe, folks. (laughs) 
subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Okay, that's the incredible interview done by Laura Gross with Mal Evans just uh, about a month before Mal had an unfortunate experience, shall we say. Uh, that was recorded November 29th, right in this very studio, and I think it shows very many incredible sides of Mal Evans, a serious, comical, etc. What we're going to do right now, we have about 19 minutes left. We're going to play some music that meant a lot to Mel, and here to introduce the first tune is uh, Laura Gross. What? Yeah, just before I introduce the tune, I wanted to say one last thing. Besides, wasn't he great? I did want to say that the press reports that have been coming out about Mal since he died have been very negative. They're besmirching his character, claiming he was depressed because of his lack of work, or that he was fighting with Fran. Obviously, he had his book just about to come out. And he had just contracted to produce a group, Natural Gas, so he wasn't out of work, wasn't fighting with Fran. And I think that those types of reports are not only sensational and tacky, they're also a blatant lie. Ask anyone who knew him, met him, talked to him. He was a fabulous person, and I think you can tell it from his own words. He's gone, and that's a horrible fact that we have to accept. But I know that he will live on in the memories of those of us who knew and loved him. I think the finest tribute to Mal is to share the love he gave us with other people. Then, in one way, he can never die. And one way to share that love is to share the music that meant so much to him. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.